turn in our Bibles with those words in mind, let us turn to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 14, I will be reading verses 13 through 21. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. This is the word of the Lord. A, a few weeks ago, around Christmas season, my family and I were enjoying a night out down in Palm Beach, just taking in the, the decorations, the lights, the sights. And, and while we were down there, a, a young man, a stranger, came up to my wife and handed her his phone and said, would you please take a picture uh, of, of us? And he pointed to the young woman next to her. And, uh, and, and as my wife prepared to take the picture, the young man got on his knee and held out a ring. And the crowd had much the same reaction. My daughter was thrilled to witness an engagement. Um, there were tears. There was cheering. Uh, and I couldn't help but wonder how that scene would have looked to somebody who didn't understand what a ring symbolized in our culture. What that was all about. I mean, it's a ring. Sure, it's nice. It's a neat little gift. Maybe it's a little expensive. But um, why the tears? Why the pictures? Why the cheering? What's the big deal? It's because the ring, though itself is nice, it points to something bigger. It means something more than just the ring. It's a promise. It's a commitment. It's a demonstration of, of the young man's uh, desire and ability to provide for, to care for uh, this young woman. It's, it's, he's saying, in effect, I'm giving you my everything. And here is something to remind you of that and to show you that. Well, the Lord does the same thing for His people. We live our lives feeling vulnerable and uncertain. How do we know that we'll be okay? And to answer that, the Lord promises to provide for us. And as He does so, He gives us something to point us to His promise. The, the feeding of the 5,000, which is misnamed, as we see, it's actually much more than that. It's probably closer to 10,000. It's the only miracle that occurs in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John tell four accounts of the life of Jesus, pulling in different teachings and miracles and stories, but there's one miracle that is in all four of them. And it's this miracle. The feeding of the multitude. And that is significant. Because it's much more than just the feeding of the hungry people. If you understand what God is telling His people through that miracle. When you see that, you understand that God is making a promise to His people. He knows our need and He is asking us to trust Him because in Jesus, He meets all 
of our needs. We see that He knows our need. The section begins with Jesus uh, in an action that resonates with every introvert in the room. He's seeking some alone time. Okay? It's a stressful period. Recent events have, have stretched Him. He went back to His hometown, and while He was there, they made fun of Him and rejected Him. Then He heard that Herod, King Herod, the violent king, threatened for his own safety, had heard about Jesus and had executed John the Baptist. So, in verse 13, when Jesus heard all this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. We know Jesus would often do this. He would get away to pray, to seek wisdom from his heavenly Father, and to let things cool down when, they, when he had become too popular. But, at this point, his ministry is too popular for him to get away. And so we see in the rest of verse 13 that when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And so you have Jesus who's gotten in a boat and he's, he's cutting across the lake, hoping to get to a desert place where there's no crowds, no towns. And you can, uh, you can almost picture the people on the shoreline watching the boat and just following along the shoreline. There he is, there he is, there he is. And as they're going, they're just kind of picking up more and more people from the villages and towns as they go about until this giant mob of people arrives in the desert, in the wilderness, as the boat lands. And Jesus sees them as He comes ashore. Now, it's not exactly the point of this passage, but I think it's worth pausing to note how Jesus deals with this interruption. Because Jesus is often interrupted by people in need, and He is never short with them. He doesn't place His own plans or needs above other people. Go away! Can't you see I'm trying to meditate on the command to love people? Leave me alone. How often we would want to do that. But God does not treat us that way. We are never a bother to Him when we approach Him in our time of need. Instead, Jesus looks upon the crowds that are disrupting His planned solitude. And He is filled, verse 14, He sees the great crowd and has compassion on them. And He healed their sick. But not only that, He knows that there's another need coming. He knows they're hungry. When John tells this story in the Gospel of John chapter 6, he includes this little detail that I like. Lifting up his eyes and seeing a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, one of his disciples, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus knew that they were hungry. And more than that, he already knows what he's going to do about it. And that needs to sink deep into your heart. Jesus knows what you need. He knows what you need before you ask for it. He knows what you need before you know that you need it. And He cares very deeply about it. Jesus is not described here as being reluctant or forced or pressured into helping the people. No, He is compassionate. He cares. He meets their need for healing. He meets their need for comfort. He meets their need... For food, not because he has to, but because he cares. That's very different from a view that, that many of us, maybe in our hearts, take of Jesus. Kind of a restaurant view. You know, I, I lived overseas for a number of years, and in the culture where I lived, um, customer service uh, had no translation, culturally speaking. And if you went to a restaurant, uh, the, the waitress or the, the waiter, the server's job was to take your order, put the food on the table, and walk away. You know, there was no like checking up on you, making sure, hey, do you want some more water? Can I get you some more? Would you like a dessert menu? Is everything okay? Do you need me to fix anything? 
And so when I had friends from that country come to visit me here, and we would go to a restaurant, and we're being served so wonderfully, they said, you live in a country of such kind people. I said, no, we're paying them to do that. They're paid to care about you. And, and that's how we see Jesus sometimes, even as we approach him in prayer. We think, what do I have to give Jesus to care about my needs? Okay, Jesus, here's the deal. Um, I'm going to give you above average moral behavior, money to charity, and I'll put a bumper sticker on my car with your name on it. And in return, I want you to answer my prayers that are within reason. And whether we would articulate it that way or not, that's how we're thinking of Jesus. That's how we think of prayer. What do I have to give God to get what I need? And that's not the Jesus we are shown in Scripture. Jesus doesn't care about your needs because you pay Him to. He cares about your needs because He loves you. In fact, He went so far as to meet your greatest need without any motivation or request on your part. Romans chapter 5, God shows His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We, far from having deserved His meeting of our need, we had gone the opposite direction. You don't need to persuade God to care about you. In prayer, you're not offering up or trying to offer up some sort of sacrifice to God. Have you ever found yourself doing that? God, if you would just take care of this crisis in my life, I promise I will fill in the blank, whatever it is. I will give up this. I'll stop doing that. I'll start doing this. I'll give you that. It's like we feel like we have to make a sacrifice for God to receive us. All the while forgetting the sacrifice was already made. He receives us in love, not in obligation. Even if we confuse our wants and our needs, He doesn't. He knows what we need. And He is a good and generous giver. See how in verse 20, Matthew describes that they all ate and were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. What a neat little detail. Okay, this wasn't just like, okay, let's, let's break this up and see if everybody can get one bite and still go home hungry. No, they all ate and were completely satisfied. And there was 12 baskets left over, more than they could possibly have needed. I, I like to think of it that the 12 disciples each had a basket for lunch the next day. You know, we make good use of our leftovers. The Lord supplies exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we could ask or imagine. God knows your needs, brother and sister. He cares about it. But He wants our trust. I've said it before here, and I will say it again, one of these days, I'm going to do either a Sunday school series, a sermon series, I'm going to do something on people who try to tell Jesus what to do and how that works out for them. Because there's a lot of examples. And Martha, tell my sister to help me in the kitchen. Oh, Martha, Martha, Martha. Or the man who says, Jesus, tell my brother to split the inheritance. Really? That's what you want of me? Jesus, don't talk about your crucifixion, Peter. And so here we have another example, the disciples. Verse 15, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, Jesus. No restaurants. The day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Now, first of all, they are being compassionate to the crowds. This is a good thing. They recognize the need. They care about it. We don't need to be critical of the disciples on this point. They see a problem. There's only one solution that will work. And so they tell Jesus to implement their plan. Have you ever done that? Have you ever looked at your circumstances and said, Lord, I have a problem. 
I, I, there's something wrong in my, in my family, in my career, in my, in my marriage. There's something not right. And there's only one way it can be fixed. So Lord, I've done the hard work of figuring out the solution. Here you go. My will be done. We never think like that, do we? But Jesus had a response that the disciples didn't expect. Verse 16. Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. To which the disciples reply in verse 17, we only have five loaves and two fish. That would be about enough for the twelve disciples and Jesus. Not enough for 10,000 people. So far, we know that it's a great crowd. It's not even until verse 21 that they actually get a count. They're probably counting as they're passing things out. Verse 21, those who ate were about 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. So probably much, much more than that. Five loaves, two fish, thousands of people. And the disciples are simply pointing out the obvious. It's not enough. And what Jesus is asking them to do, He wants them to trust Him. Verse 18, He says, bring what you do have. I'm not asking for your solutions. I'm asking you to bring what you have to me. And let me be the solution. Because I want you to trust me. Remember how John described it earlier? When John described the scene, he said that Jesus asked them to do that to test them. Because he already knew what he was going to do. He wasn't calling the disciples together for a brainstorming session. How are we going to feed these people? He already knew. And he wanted to see, do you trust me enough? Do you look at me and see the one who can provide anything? Do you look at me and see the Creator? I made the grain that people use to make bread. You don't think I can multiply it? I sure can. I turned water into wine. Okay? Do they believe yet that all things are possible? He is testing their trust. Or do they still have a worldly way of looking at things? We look at our problems and we see the problems. Faith is not looking at it and assuming a solution. Faith is saying, okay, so God's got a solution. I need to look to Him. Much the way that the sheep look to the shepherd. Listen to Psalm 23. Very familiar. Listen to it with that in mind. Of the kind of trust that the sheep place in their shepherd. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do you see the way that the sheep can trust the shepherd? Trust Him to take them to green pastures where there is food. Lead them beside still waters where they can drink in safety. Even in the presence of enemies providing for their needs. The sheep have everything they need. All they have to do is follow where the shepherd takes them. And the same is true for you, children of God. Jesus takes care of you. He asks that you trust Him enough to follow Him. But what does trust look like? Is trust uh, sitting at home and doing nothing because God's going to take care of it? Is trust selling all you have? Selling your house, your car, getting rid of your belongings, emptying your bank account, giving it all to charity and saying, okay God, now I trust you to pay my bills. 
That's not trust. That's not anywhere near how the Bible describes trust. Trust is doing what God calls you to do. Even if it makes you nervous. Even if it doesn't make sense. Even if it makes you uncomfortable. Even if you can't possibly imagine how it's going to work out. Trust says, okay God, you said to do it. I'm going to do it. Jesus didn't expect that the twelve disciples were going to feed every multitude in the same way. He didn't call them to that, but He said, this time, that's what I'm telling you to do, is to feed them with five loaves and two fish. Trust Me in that. Trust is, is adjusting your budget so that you give to God before you give to other things and before you spend and see what's left over. Trust is confronting a brother or a sister that you have seen in sin and risk losing their friendship because they won't like what they hear. Trust is resting one day in seven because God says that six days of work are enough. The reason we don't do that very often is because we fear losing something. We fear losing a relationship or uh, security or, or money or respect or something. Whatever we fear losing, the message of the Gospel is God will provide. He will provide whatever you need as long as you trust. The crowds trusted Jesus, interestingly. That's something that you can notice in this passage. The crowds of people followed Him to a place where they knew there were no restaurants, no trees to harvest from, no food to be had. They were either very foolish or they believed and trusted Jesus enough to not worry about the details. And that is how we see, uh, almost hidden to our eyes until we look at it the way that Matthew would have read it, that Jesus fulfills our longings. You see, he, he cares, He knows about and cares about our needs. He wants us to trust Him, but He fulfills our longings, and that's the deepest message here. Because in following Jesus in the wilderness and trusting Him to provide, these people were mirroring another moment in the history of the people of God. When the Lord led His people into a desolate place with no food. And once they got there, He fed them. That is without doubt on the minds of everyone who read Matthew's story with the eyes of an Israelite. With someone who had been raised on the, New, on the Old Testament and heard the stories of God's deliverance for His people. And so that is one of the reasons that Jesus used this miracle. Because the people of God in His day were expecting and awaiting deliverance. Sure, healing the lame and blind is good. It's miraculous. It's wonderful. Casting out demons, without doubt, amazing. But there is a bigger problem at hand. God's people are oppressed. They're living under the dominion of foreign powers and they know that it should not be this way. And they are waiting for and eager for a deliverer. And when Jesus began His ministry, He announced, uh, using the words of Isaiah, He announced in the synagogue, He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to set free the captives, to, to announce the year of the Lord's favor, to preach good news to those in prison. It was not in any way subtle to those who heard it that He was there to bring deliverance. And so they watched Him. And they watched Him heal. And they watched Him preach. And they watched Him speak with authority. And they're waiting and they're waiting and they're saying, is this the one? Is this the one who's not just a magic worker, but the one who will bring full deliverance for God's people? And they hoped. Because any Savior worthy 
of being called Savior must be filled with God's power not just to make things easier, but to deliver, to save. Just as Moses, God's chosen servant, had delivered Israel from Egypt, and then when they were hungry, the Lord provided bread from heaven, meeting their physical need, showed that He would meet their need for deliverance. And so John, again, recording this this, uh, miracle, records the reaction of the crowds in John 6.14. When the people saw the sign of the feeding of the multitude that He had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. The prophet, capital P, prophet, is one that Moses predicted. He said, look, after me is going to come another one, a prophet, and he will speak the word of the Lord, and you must listen to him and obey him, follow him. And after that time, Israel had many prophets, lowercase p, men and women who who spoke the word of God and communicated God's will to the people, but they were waiting for the prophet. And when Jesus performed this amazing, unprecedented feeding, they said, this is the one, the one Moses told about. He's doing what Moses did. He's announcing deliverance for God's people. That's what we need to see in this story. Not just for the people in Jesus' time. Not just as a theological curiosity. But we need to see that for our own hearts. Because this is not a story about full bellies. And this is not a story about someone with amazing powers to multiply food. It's about something much bigger and much better than all of that. If you're familiar with the, the novel... Uh, by J.R.R. Tolkien, The Hobbit. There's a character, Gandalf, who performs amazing, miraculous things. He's a wizard. And he's got these power, this power that he uses to save and deliver and protect what is good in the world. And at the beginning of the story of The Hobbit, he, he's trying to, uh, to get a, a hobbit that's a, a small race of, of people that are they just like peace and quiet. And they don't get involved in all the big, grand adventures and stories in the world. And as Gandalf is... is uh, reintroducing himself to Bilbo the Hobbit, Bilbo's like, Gandalf, Gandalf, Gandalf. Oh, you, you used to do those fireworks, didn't you? Gandalf could do so much more. Gandalf had amazing powers to save and deliver. But all Bilbo was familiar with was the fireworks. And rather than being offended by that or insulted, Gandalf goes, you remember the fireworks at least. That's good. That's good. Because his point is that if you at least know my fireworks, then let that point you to something more. Let, them sh- let that show you what more I am capable of, of what I can do, and what he would go on to do, to save and deliver. Because for Bilbo, the fireworks pointed to something more. And for those who sat and had a meal with Jesus in the wilderness, that meal pointed to something more. The God who knows and meets your earthly needs, the God who can be trusted to care for your physical needs, is also the one who knows and provides for your deepest need. The longings of your heart. Or I would even correct that to the singular and say the longing of your heart. The longing that is underneath every one of your strivings, your desires, your every hunger. He satisfies that one longing. Because when your heart seeks security. When your heart seeks a sense of belonging, when you seek affection in relationships, when you seek entertainment and distraction, what you're looking for in every addiction and in every compulsion, what motivates every one of your pursuits 
And what's behind every vice and every virtue is your heart's longing to be justified. And you would not use that word probably, but that's what it is. Because you seek to be justified, which means you want to be declared right. You want to be okay. You want someone or something to certify you and say, acceptable, loved, welcomed, good. That's justification. And you are seeking it in a thousand different ways. You want to hear that from your peers. You want to hear that from your family. You want to hear that from strangers. You want people to look at you and say, that one's good. That's justification. Because we live our lives separated. We feel isolated. We feel insecure. And we should. We should feel insecure because we are separated from our Maker. That's how we begin. In isolation. And we seek through a thousand different paths to find our way back to where we belong. Not knowing, most times, what it is that will make us feel right again. And so He gives us a meal. He gives us a meal that points us to deliverance. To that which fulfills our deepest longing. Our deepest need. Both the meal in the wilderness and the meal before us today at the Lord's Supper teach us some of the same things. They teach us that we are needy and hungry people. They teach us that Jesus knows our need and that He cares about it. They teach us that we can trust Him to do what we cannot do to satisfy our longings. Crowds that followed Jesus into the wilderness, they understood that the meal He served them was only the beginning of something much greater. The meal pointed to something more. For those that gather around the Lord's table, the same promise holds. That this is only the beginning. This is a promise of something more. An appetizer, if you will, of a greater feast. A feast where Jesus will again be the host and all His people will gather around at the wedding feast of the Lamb. So let us pray together and prepare our hearts to receive and respond to the meal that the Lord has provided and to hear with ready ears what we would learn from it of the Lord who knows our need, the Lord who is trusted can be trusted to provide and to fulfill our deepest longings. Let us pray.